Welcome to TopCast, and for a standalone episode on objective knowledge. Now, Popper wrote a book of the same name called Objective Knowledge, which was a collection of essays, but today I'm not going to be quoting anything from the book Objective Knowledge. Similarly, David Deutsch writes about objective knowledge, but likewise, I'm not going to be quoting anything from the work of David Deutsch. Instead, this is going to be a summary of what I now understand objective knowledge to be, and I'm going to compare it to other visions of epistemology that are out there. Before we get into objective knowledge, it's worth setting the scene. It's worth understanding what this notion of objectivity is all about to begin with. So let's begin there. Part one, objectivity. When something is described as objective, it means that there is a truth of the matter about it, independent of what anyone thinks, feels, or believes on the topic. So, for example, independent of what anyone thinks, the Earth is the third planet from the Sun. Atoms of lithium contain three protons. One plus two equals three, and the triple alpha process for carbon fusion requires three nuclei of helium. Now, standing apart from any of that are claims such as the music of Mozart is more enjoyable than that of Beethoven, or a good seafood buffet is preferable to any Michelin star formal dining experience, and no matter how good Teslas get, the driving experience will never match that of an Australian Holden Commodore. All of those claims are subjective. There exists a component of the claim that depends entirely on what an individual person believes, thinks or feels. What their personal perceptions are. Do oysters taste nice? Some will retch at the thought. Others, like myself, have never found the number of oysters to ever be sufficient. They're delicious. Or are they actually delicious? Are they actually delicious to me? Or in some objective sense? Well, here is where we get into that slightly tricky distinction between what John Searle identified as the two senses of objectivity versus subjectivity. On the one hand, we have this notion of objectivity being as I described, about facts of the matter, where the Earth is, what particular numbers add up to, how many protons there may be in a given atomic nucleus. The answers to these matters are independent of people's thoughts. They are out there in the world, so to speak. But other things are subject to personal taste. The deliciousness of oysters. A preference for one style of music over another. This is called the epistemological distinction between subjectivity and objectivity. But now there's a curiosity that appears. Because if we just focus for a moment on my claim that oysters are delicious, well, that is an objective claim an objective fact about me, an objective claim about my subjective experience, an objective claim about my subjectivity. My subjectivity is, in a sense, me. It is my experience. It exists independent of what I think about it. I am just presented with deliciousness of oyster each time I pop one into my mouth, as I am repulsed by the odour of certain French cheeses. These are objective facts about me and my preferences. But it seems like my preferences are not out there in the world of objects, but rather they're in my mind. In other words, there is a world of objects out there, the objective world. And there is also a world of subjects, the subjective world, namely the contents of people's minds. Their conscious experience of the world is a world of subjectivity. And there are true and false claims we can make about that subjective world of experience. What this means is that we have an epistemological distinction to make between these two words, objective and subjective, 
namely the former, objective, are about claims that could be true or false, right or wrong, independent of anyone's preferences. And the latter, subjective claims, are literally your preferences. There is not a single strict right or wrong universally for everyone. Are oysters delicious? Well, there is no objective answer that is true independent of the thoughts of a mind and experiences of a person. You have to ask an individual. But then there is an ontological distinction too. The ontological distinction is that there is a world of objects and a world of subjects. Never mind the claims about planets and numbers and protons. Those things are objects out there in the world. And then there are people's preferences, tastes, experiences, their internal sensation of blue when they look at the sky and so on. That is a subjective world. And we can make true or false claims about it. I find oysters delicious is a claim about my ontologically subjective world. And it is a factual claim which could be true or false. I could be lying after all. But that claim therefore becomes epistemologically objective. It's true or false. And it's about my subjectivity. So sometimes we can be entirely objective about our subjectivity. If something is subjective, it does not mean it is not truthful or factual, but it can mean it is about a particular individual. This distinction of objective and subjective in John Searle's sense, is actually just a limiting case of Karl Popper's three worlds that he distinguished between. And I'm going to pretty much pass over it with very little comment. Popper's worlds include, well, world one, that are about the world of objects that I've already mentioned, planets, protons, pi, both kinds of pi, the number and the lemon meringue or the meat kind. This is the ontological objective world. World two for Popper is the subjective world of mental processes. So our experience of stuff, John Searle's world of ontological subjectivity. This is the ontologically subjective world, world two. And world three, world three is the world of ideas and theories and explanations. The relationships we can write down or articulate about worlds one and worlds two, mainly world one. This is where the theory of planetary orbits is to be found. The theory itself is not an object. It's not like the orbit itself. There is the reality of the planet and its orbit, world one, and then there is the theory of, or the explanation of, or our knowledge about the orbit, world three. World three matches world one with more or less error, and we expect it to improve over time as our explanations do, as we correct errors. When we look at a planet moving across the sky through a telescope, we are having an experience of the planet. That's world two. Now, to what extent world three, our theories and explanations, affect world two, our experiences? Well, let's save that for another time. But those are Popper's worlds. So in a sense, he got there before Searle. And like I say, I'm going to pass over it without any more comment. But all of this talk about subjective and objective brings me to part two of this podcast, objective knowledge proper. This objective knowledge, this is world three, really. The world of theories and explanations, it's the world of objective knowledge. Genuine objective knowledge is objective in both senses, or at least it can be. Popper's epistemology is an explanation of objective knowledge that goes beyond the objectivity claimed by other epistemologies out there, which, when they're analysed, always fall into some form of subjectivity, or both kinds of subjectivity sometimes, and I'll come back to that. Popper's epistemology explains that our knowledge of reality, our scientific, historic, moral, mathematical, and philosophical explanations, they are objective. That epistemology is about objective knowledge, 
objective knowledge in the sense that it can be an object itself that transforms the world around us. But it also is out there in the objective world as part of world one in the sense that it is instantiated in objects. It is objective because, for example, a telescope contains within it the knowledge, the relationships between the lenses and the mirrors of a telescope are the same as the relationships that the telescope builder or designer has written down or that the astronomer has instantiated in their minds of how to collect and focus light. Those are mathematical relationships that have a one-to-one -one correspondence between what happens in the telescope to focus light, what's going on in the telescope itself, and the plan for the telescope or the explanations of the telescope's operation. The knowledge is objective in the sense that it is out there in the object of the telescope. So it is objective in Searle's ontological sense, or in Popper's world one world of objects sense. But this knowledge is doubly objective because it is objective in Searle's epistemological sense as well, or in Popper's world three sense. And this is because the truth or falsity, rightness or wrongness, correctness or incorrectness of the claims is utterly independent of anyone's belief about what's going on, or how certain people are about it, or how confident, or whatever other feeling they might have. The theory of the telescope's operation is true, or it's not true. False or not false, in most cases our theories of the world, be they theories of how a telescope collects and focuses light, or how planets move or species change over time, all these theories, explanations, these ideas contain some misconception, some error. They can be improved in some way. They do not perfectly capture reality. And for these reasons, we can expect all of them to, strictly speaking, be misconceptions false in some way, false in the final analysis, but they do contain some truth. They have some useful information. They are useful information, and that useful information means they are knowledge. And because the information of those explanations is useful, it gets copied. It persists. It's resilient. Or as David Deutsch has put it, knowledge is that information that once it is instantiated somewhere in a physical substrate, it tends to cause itself to remain so. Why? Because it's useful. It is information that solves a problem. And all of these ways of putting it, what objective knowledge is, are, again, independent of what people believe about it. It solves the problem or it does not. It doesn't matter what anyone believes. So the old trope of knowledge being justified, true belief, is categorically false. It's not about belief. And as for true, we have already seen it is not true usually. We should expect it to contain misconceptions and be, in the final analysis, false, which is why Newton's theory of gravity can be useful knowledge, useful information, knowledge, though false and replaced by a better, closer to a correct theory of reality. Explanations such as general relativity have superseded Newton's showing that it is wrong and why and how. All other claims to explain objective knowledge fall back onto it being about some kind of belief or some degree of certainty, another feeling people have to be more or less certain. This is why Bayesians, for example, can never claim to be understanding objective knowledge properly. Yes, they will make more or less true claims. Yes, they will be engaged in the pursuit of objective knowledge, but they will fall back into an epistemology, an explanation of what they and everyone else is doing that is entirely subjective. Their priors, their prior probabilities, begin somewhere. 
when they claim there is some probability of some event happening or some theory being true, that initial guess is generated using nothing but the knowledge of some subject matter expert. And how do they generate the original guess? By guessing. But how? Well, here's the problem. It's just a feeling, a sense. There isn't anything objective there. It is a subjective feeling. But their guess will then encounter objective reality out there. And from there on in, if they are rational, they'll do what Popper explained. It's the only thing they can rationally do. What Popper explained needs to be done in order to refine and improve actual objective knowledge. They will refute their guesses by testing them against reality. And that refutation is now independent of what they think or hope. Their guess will then turn out false, almost always, and they'll learn something. It would be remarkable if their so-called probability, which doesn't really exist in ontological reality anyway, turned out to be exactly true. Their prior was exactly true. And while we're on it, it won't matter, even if you call your entire worldview objectivism. It won't make your epistemology more objective than others if, at the heart of things, you are still focusing on certainty, degrees of confidence, and belief. If you deny that knowledge is useful information that can be encoded or instantiated in objects, then your epistemology is not objective. If you deny that theories are true or false, independent of people's beliefs, if you think knowledge is explicitly about feelings or emotions of some kind, you do not have an objective epistemology. Call it whatever new label you like. It is an account of the subjective inner workings of people's minds and not objective knowledge. It might even be about their perceptions and deriving things from people's perceptions. But objective knowledge is a more curious beast than this. It belongs, in truth, to Popper's World One. It's a real causal agent in things out there changing the world. But it is also all of what World Three consists of. So it's a strange kind of thing, like I have said. I've compared it before to being like a force of nature. Not literally, of course. I'm just comparing it to a force of nature. But if you try to predict, try to guess what the future is like on the Earth in the distant future, or just your local cosmos, or indeed the universe as a whole, if you try and guess what it's going to be like in a hundred years, or a million years, or a billion years, you cannot invoke only purely physical phenomena, hitherto studied by physicists, like nuclear forces and gravity. To know what any of those things from your backyard to the whole Earth, to the cosmos itself, will be like in a hundred or a billion years, you need to know what knowledge will be created, what people will be doing, which depends upon their knowledge, because it is that knowledge that will have the biggest effect on the evolution of the universe. It is explanations that transform the universe. Objective knowledge is what it is. But let us give some of the alternatives their own voice for a moment and compare what they imply about objectivity and knowledge to the actual matter of objective knowledge. Let us compare more parochial visions of knowledge with what we have come to understand of knowledge from Popper and Deutsch. Part 3. Other Ideas Almost all other ideas about what knowledge is and, and how and to what extent it can be objective are related in some way to the original idea found in Plato, that knowledge is justified true belief. Even if knowledge is not defined in this way, there will be elements of certainty or of belief, the subjective standard, and justified, the infallible standard. I take issue with all those ideas in my post, Seeking Truth, which you can find on my website. First, let us consider the most in vogue epistemology at the moment that goes by the name Bayesian epistemology. There is a website called Less Wrong, 
and Less Wrong is the go-to website for Bayesianism, at least for a broad-brush understanding of it. No lesser an academic than Steven Pinker, in his book Rationality, defers in a sense to the articles in Less Wrong, and everything he says in his book there basically accords with what is said on the website Less Wrong. Let's quote what they say in one of their articles. They say, quote, The core claim behind all varieties of Bayesianism is that probabilities are subjective degrees of belief, often operationalized as willingness to bet, end quote. Okay, so there we have it. Now, to be fair, the word knowledge doesn't even appear there, but the central idea can't be ignored. Bayesianism is something to do with probability and something to do with subjective interpretations. Very well, we're not getting objectivity. But in another article on Less Wrong by Karj Satola, which is titled, What is Bayesianism? We read something called Core Tenant One, and I'll quote what Core Tenant One is. Quote, Any given observation has many different possible causes. End quote. We might quibble over whether any given observation has one possible cause, but we may have many different possible guesses about the one possible cause, so there might already be some ambiguity or confusion about knowing some cause and the cause in itself. Whatever the case is, we go on to read in the article, quote, Suppose you had to choose between two competing scientific theories about the motion of planets. A theory about the laws of physics governing the motion of planets, devised by Sir Isaac Newton. Or a theory simply stating that the flying spaghetti monster pushes the planets forward with his noodly appendage. If these theories made the same predictions, you'd have to depend on your prior knowledge. Your prior, for short, to judge which one was more likely. And even if they didn't make the same predictions, you'd need some prior knowledge which told you which of the predictions were better or that the predictions matter in the first place, as opposed to, say, theoretical elegance, end quote. So firstly, notice that the author calls both of these competing scientific theories. Of course, the flying spaghetti monster is not a scientific theory. It makes no testable claims. It is a bad explanation because it's too easy to vary. Why is it a flying spaghetti monster and not a noodle monster or a fettuccine monster? Or not a monster at all, but an angel and so on, ad infinitum. It's too easy to vary. What is it referring to in reality that's actually causing the gravitational effect? And what is said there is that we all have to depend on our prior to judge which is more likely. No, it seems we simply rule one out as a bad explanation. We never have to say Newton's is more likely. The fact is, Newton's, given that choice, is the only explanation. The other is a non-explanation and gives us no useful information. And in fact, in reality, of course, and let's talk about reality, we're talking about accurate predictions, which no other random theory can give us. To get accurate predictions about the world, we need to have an accurate explanation to some extent about the world. And as for some prior probability, well, forget it. It's not probably correct. It's false. But this is Bayesianism as its adherents express it. As the very same article goes on to say in Core Tenant 3, quote, We can use the concept of probability to measure our subjective belief in something. Furthermore, we can apply the mathematical laws regarding probability to choosing between different beliefs. If we want our beliefs to be correct, we must do so. End quote. Again, what is the probability of Newton's theory of gravity being correct? Well, it's zero, as Eddington's experiment shows. 
Should we believe it? No, we should not. It's false. But we can use it and we can call it knowledge. The theory is useful as well as false, independent of any subjective claim we make. This is all objective. It objectively works to some degree of accuracy. It objectively fails in some situations. Knowledge is not about belief. Knowledge can be false as well as contain truth. There's no problem of logic here, by the way. This is logical. If I have a logical conjunction of two claims, A, which is true, and B, which is false, then the logical conjunction, A and B, is strictly logically false, but it contains some truth, namely the truth that's in A, which is what we are saying about Newton's theory. And what we presume is the case for all theories, all knowledge. They contain some truth, and the more truth they contain, the better they represent and explain reality, and the more problems they solve. But even one iota of falsehood, logically, makes the whole thing false. But there are degrees of falsity. But that one iota, we should expect in every theory. And that means we should expect all of our knowledge to contain misconceptions. But that doesn't make it any less useful and closer to representing reality. So much for Bayesianism. I have spent much time explaining elsewhere why Bayesianism is nothing but induction in a cheap tuxedo. It is false, but it does contain some truth. But unlike Popper's critical rationalism, in other words, unlike actual objective epistemology about objective knowledge, it is much further away from the truth. It is a worse explanation of epistemology and how knowledge grows. It contains very great misconceptions. We cannot measure truth. We cannot objectively determine the subjective beliefs about probabilities in the first place. That, that's a category error because you're simply pretending that your prior probability is objective, but it's not. It's your own subjective guess about the subjective belief you have. You don't even understand what your true beliefs are. This is one of the great misconceptions that Bayesianism also has, as if you have privileged access to understanding what you think the probability of a particular belief is that you have. It's like those cosmologists who claim they will give you a probability of us living in a cosmological multiverse, a multiverse of multiverses where other universes have different physical laws. Some might say it's a 99% chance. Others might say it's a 1% chance. How do they arrive at that number? Not by calculating. They just feel it. <laughs> it's purely subjective. Now, presenting it as objective, well, there is a word besides dubious that we might want to use here, but I'll stick with being polite. So because their starting point is purely subjective, just because someone else comes along and says we should update our priors that we live in a cosmological multiverse because someone has just observed the inexplicable somewhere, like, let's say, an apparent variation in the strength of the fine structure constant, it is no reason to take any of these probabilities seriously as science. Science is not about subjective belief. It is about objective knowledge. So we can reject Bayesianism as not objective, not really about knowledge, but rather about, at best, beliefs, and that's by their own insistence, and failing to account for how science, rationality, or anything else much works. Objectivism. Ayn Rand's philosophy, objectivism, contains much that is useful and worth understanding. Not least are the defense of capitalism and trade. How wealth is generated is captured in part by Rand, but importantly, the morality of free trade is defended and explained accurately. The idea of defending human life, and in particular, having a stance that your own life is the most valuable thing in your life and should be taken seriously, is a central tenet of Rand's clear-sighted vision of reality. 
However, the epistemology is entirely misconceived. Unfortunately for those who follow in the tradition of Rand, where many of us who follow in the tradition of Popper can recognise the virtue of Rand's ethics and the virtue of Rand's economics and politics, at least to some extent, the reverse is rarely the case. It's rare to encounter an objectivist who will admit to the charge that there is little that is objective about the vision of knowledge that Rand has when compared to Popper. Very few of them have read Popper, and I've talked to them. Let us read Rand in her own words briefly. Firstly, from her co-authored book, titled An Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. And here, she and Leonard Peikoff, the other author, writes, quote, The concept of knowledge is formed by retaining its distinguishing characteristics, a mental grasp of facts of reality, reached either by perceptual observation or by a process of reason based on perceptual observation and omitting the particular facts involved, end quote, from page 40 of that particular work. Here she is clearly in an empiricist mindset, and in fact she remained an empiricist mindset throughout her philosophy. But we cannot grasp facts of reality by perceptual observation. We do not perceive, for example, nuclear fusion going on in the core of stars. We conjecture it. We have no hope of ever observing it. We have no hope of perceiving that. Now, this is not independent of observation, but the function of observation is to decide between theories guessed. Later, she goes on to say, and this is on page 60 of that work, quote, Axioms are usually considered to be propositions identifying a fundamental self-evident truth, but explicit propositions as such are not primaries, they are made of concepts. The base of man's knowledge of all other concepts, all axioms, propositions, and thought, consists of axiomatic concepts. An axiomatic concept is the identification of a primary fact of reality, which cannot be analysed, i.e. reduced to other facts or broken into component parts. It is implicit in all facts and all knowledge. It is the fundamentally given and directly perceived or experienced, which requires no proof or explanation but on which all proofs and explanations rest. End quote. So again, we have this misconception of directly perceived, whatever that means, as if humans can be infallible, but we cannot directly perceive. We interpret perceptions. We do not begin with perceptions, but interpretations of perceptions. And they can always be wrong because by nature they're interpretations and we can reinterpret things. For instance, as I've mentioned before, through any two points, a single straight line can be drawn. That seems like a self-evident truth. Just try it yourself. It's directly perceived and so on. But it's completely false. And it's shown to be completely false by drawing it all over again on a curved surface. Language is ambiguous. And much of our knowledge is accessed through how we understand what language is telling us about reality. Not all of it but at least some of it. So this idea of direct perception is mediated by us understanding what we mean when we try to come to understand these things. In terms of the phrase objective knowledge, by the way, it appears in that book. An introduction to objectivist epistemology, the phrase objective knowledge, appears only once. And it appears in the following passage. Let me read it. Quote, Such is the current condition of philosophy. If, in recent decades, there has been an enormous brain drain from the humanities, with the best minds seeking escape, 
and objective knowledge in the physical sciences, as demonstrated by the dearth of great names or achievements in the humanities, one need look no further for its causes, end quote. So, she does not focus on objective knowledge at all, or explain why knowledge is objective, or anything like that. And this is in her own book, serving as an introduction to objectivist epistemology. And that's bizarre. There's nothing really about objective knowledge or what makes it objective and so on. Now, I like much of Rand. For example, that very passage there about the brain drain from the humanities. Let's look at what prompted it. The immediate prior paragraph reads, quote, As reporters, linguistic analysts were accurate. Wittgenstein's theory that a concept refers to a conglomeration of things vaguely tied together by a family resemblance is a perfect description of the state of a mind out of focus, end quote. Which is a wonderful take in accord with my own and Popper's view of Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein was a massive bad turn in philosophy and did damage to the humanities by making it seem confusing, especially philosophy, and also worse, vacuous by describing it as just a bunch of word games. So lay the blame for the state of academic philosophy, amongst other people, and the state of the humanities at the feet of Ludwig Wittgenstein. And if we can do that, the objectivists and the people who follow in the tradition of Popper, then we're all on the same team. Something I wish the objectivists saw more often. In another of Rand's books, which is titled For the New Intellectual, the phrase objective knowledge never comes up. Objective reality comes up, which is a far easier thesis to defend. We are all on the same side against the relativists in defending the existence of objective reality. But in this book, For the New Intellectual, let me read a short passage that illustrates Rand's other major misconception about knowledge that crops up in almost all of her books. That passage reads, quote, To negate a man's mind, it is the conceptual level of his consciousness that has to be invalidated. Under all the tortuous complexities, contradictions, equivocations, rationalizations of the post-Renaissance philosophy, the one consistent line, the fundamental, that explains the rest, is a concerted attack on man's conceptual faculty. Most philosophers did not intend to invalidate conceptual knowledge, but its defenders did more to destroy it than its enemies. They were unable to offer a solution to the problem of universals, that is, to define the nature and source of abstractions, to determine the relationship of concepts to perceptual data, and to prove the validity of scientific induction. Ignoring the lead of Aristotle, who had not left them a full answer to the problem, but had shown the direction and the method by which the answer could be found, the philosophers were unable to refute the witch doctor's claim that their concepts were as arbitrary as his whims, and that their scientific knowledge had no greater metaphysical validity than his revelations. End quote. In other words, Rand, and I've made this point before, sees knowledge as being produced in only two methods by deduction and induction. And she has no truck with anyone who objects to this. She demands induction be the solution to how universal claims are made. But induction is false. From no finite set of observations can we demonstrate that a universal claim holds. She never grapples in any of her work with how it is that scientific induction is actually valid. Because it's not. The way universal claims are made is that they are conjectured. They are created by the minds of scientists. And here's the key. 
Here is why that is not like the witch doctors. Here is why it is not arbitrary and does not lack metaphysical validity, as she said. It is because those guesses, those claims about reality, are tested against reality, against physical reality. And when they survive refutation and are the only known explanation of the phenomena, then we know we've learned something. We have created and then tested the claim or the theory or the explanation against reality. And this process has generated objective knowledge. Unfortunately, Rand rarely refers to problems in actual science. She rarely begins there, unlike Popper, who does. And so the epistemology goes wrong because she's not focused on examples of what's really happening in physical reality, in science. It's all being talked about in the abstract. And that's a weakness of Rand's philosophy, especially her philosophy of science, if it can be called that, and her epistemology. Conclusions. Only Popper, augmented by the work of David Deutsch, has a refined epistemology of objective knowledge. Bayesianism endorses subjectivism explicitly. It says claims are probably true and the probabilities are generated by subjective feelings. But we know that error is ubiquitous, and therefore every claim will contain some amount of falsehood, making the entire claim strictly false. Explanations are always conjectural, and we rarely have competing explanations anyway. We're lucky to have an explanation. And when we have two, we can do a crucial test to rule out one of them, leaving us with only one. Objectivism, despite the name, is not a theory of objective knowledge. It too is subjectivist. It's about perceptions, mainly empiricism, the contents of sensations within the minds of individuals. Nothing is ever made of knowledge being instantiated in objects, which it is. Too much stock is put into the misconception of induction. We do not generalize from observations. We explain observations. We begin with guesses tested against objective reality. Some guesses survive this process, and we have an evolution of knowledge, therefore, towards claims that more accurately represent or model or explain reality. But these models are never final, just as evolution has no end. There is just more and more improvement. Knowledge is objective because it can be found in objects. Knowledge is useful information. The DNA contains useful information for how a gene can survive and how an organism can persist in a given environment. Explanatory knowledge contains useful information, for example, of how to make transistors. That knowledge solves a problem of how to store and process information. Because knowledge is information that solves a problem, that makes it useful. And because it is useful, it tends to get copied. It is the information that gets copied. That's what knowledge is. Information that gets replicated, copied, and passed on. Unlike the rest that is deleted and discarded. We say that knowledge is resilient. It persists over time. It is the information that, once instantiated in a physical substrate, tends to cause itself to remain so. That means it is very much out there in the physical world. It's not all in our minds. That is objective knowledge, being out there in the real physical world. Indeed, it is hard to imagine an epistemology more objective than that. But following in the tradition of Popper, I also actually do imagine there will be improvements on this vision yet to come. But it won't be by introducing probabilities, subjective feelings, or the misconceptions of empiricism and induction back into the picture. We've refuted all that. It will be by understanding the truth of the cosmic significance of knowledge more deeply. We know now what we can rule out about knowledge. 
but there is still far more left to discover.